Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, where your rabbi, that would be me, reveals how the world really works. Thanks so much for being part of the show. And um, let's see, uh, we are going to start off with a, a selection of words. Think about whether uh, your immediate reaction to these words is positive or negative. Are these, the, each word I say, think, just think to yourself, good or bad. Is this something positive or negative? Is this something admirable or reprehensible? Um, outworn, old-fashioned, moldy, obsolete, archaic, dated, antique, ancient, uh, passé, primitive, old-fashioned, old hat, behind the times, unfashionable, bygone, dated, what else have we got, vintage, passé, I I did passé already, Uh, primitive, yeah, old-fashioned, old-fangled, rusty, um, primeval, primitive, primordial, um, uh, aged, uh, bygone, been around for a while, all, all those phrases. Notice, almost without exception, uh, we relate to them negatively, wouldn't you say? Almost all of them we re- relate to negatively. So uh, the point is that we seem to be culturally conditioned to the idea that anything that is modern, good, updated, excellent, new, best, anything that is current or or even newer than current is desirable. Anything that is old, anything that is from yesterday is not nearly as good as things from tomorrow. Now, the reason this becomes an enormous problem is because you encounter occasions constantly, whether it's in papers or magazines or in the uh, in, in uh, entertainment, where somebody says something and uh, it, it has to do with women or it has to do with money, it has to do with sex, and somebody says, oh, that's so old-fashioned. And that phrase immediately dismisses it. It's now no longer worthy of serious consideration. Oh, that's primitive. Forget about it. Oh, that's so out of date. You sound so old-fashioned. Oh, come on, really? That is so obsolete. But is that always the case? Can you really dismiss an idea simply by claiming that it is from yesterday and therefore irrelevant to today and certainly of no help as we try to shape tomorrow. I want to talk about the fact that this could hardly be more incorrect and that this entire approach that automatically anything that is current, anything that's contemporary is good and wonderful and true while anything that is from yesteryear is almost by definition flawed and faulty and not to be relied upon. I want to go back. I want to conjure up a uh, a word picture for you, if I might, of uh, uh, a, a young boy sitting with his family around the dinner table. Now, at, at this time, with Passover rapidly approaching, I can't even think of a boy sitting around a dinner table, as I just said, without popping into my mind almost involuntarily uh, the picture of a family experiencing a Passover Seder. Now, some of you may be familiar with it, some of you perhaps less so, but um, in a nutshell, what I, I would tell you is that the Passover Seder is um, an annual inoculation. It's resetting the odometer of the uh, human experience, 
and it's resetting the odometer of the family structure. That's the entire idea of the Passover Seder. Uh, It is resetting the theme of uh, freedom and slavery, and not necessarily slavery of the body, but slavery of the soul, where we obey what we are told to think, and where authority tells us what is permissible to say and think and believe. And Passover comes along as an annual inoculation. And that Seder experience is a once-a-year opportunity to recover our spiritual independence and our intellectual independence and our independence of, of spirit, our independence, meaning we, we feel comfortable saying what we think and not worrying about being intimidated out of it. And um, over the years, people have often asked me, you know, how do you do a Passover Seder? And so what we did is we prepared a three-volume set called How to Lead Your Own Passover Seder. It's an audio program, so it's the sort of thing that if you want to, you can play it at your Seder, but uh, more beneficially, you might want to prepare it beforehand, listen to it. If you're going to lead a Passover Seder for your group or your family, your organization, you might want to go through it maybe more than once, make notes, Uh, expand upon it, add in your own experience, your own ideas, your own thoughts, things you've read, things you've seen, things you've thought about, and uh, and then to take your own handwritten notes with you to the Passover Seder, which is, by the way, exactly what I do. Um, I spend a number of weeks, like right now, already starting to prepare to make sure I give my family the very best in the Passover Seder. You know, experiences stay with us, things less so. And and very often we're tempted to give our children things, whereas in reality, giving them an experience means so much more. And it was that in mind that uh, with that in mind that I le- that I prepared this audio program, how to lead your own Passover Seder. So what you do is go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, then you go to the store, and um, what you then do is go to uh, the drop-down of the store where it says Instant Downloads. And you click on that, and you'll come to a section of all the things that you can download right away, And one of them is how to lead your own Passover Seder. So click on that, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there to read about what this program contains. And um, you will find it a, a very inexpensive but very worthwhile investment in your annual inoculation. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for you and your spouse. Maybe there's a family, maybe an expanded family. Maybe it's a group of friends. But whatever it is, if you want to make the Passover Seder more than just another dinner party, but you want to invest it with all the spiritual significance that the book of Exodus places in it, well, then that's what I did. And this this resource is there and ready for you. So go to rabbidanielappin.com, go to the store, and look at the at the uh, instant download resources. You'll find how to lead your own Passover Seder. And uh, so let's go back to the story now. Uh, of I asked you to imagine a boy sitting at his family dinner table. Uh, when might this have been? The year might be uh, 1770, 1780, 1810, somewhere around about there, uh, maybe maybe 1750. Uh, the period I'm looking at is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, Father says something at the table, maybe he says something in connection with his farm, or maybe he says something in connection with his little workshop where he produces chairs and tables to sell, and uh, Sonny Boy pipes up and says, Dad, you were talking about the fact that your field cannot be sowed this year because it got flooded when the river overflowed. 
but why don't you just install a steam engine driven pump and that'll pump the whole field dry and keep it dry and father raises his eyebrows and says what what is that or the far or the the father uh, who has a small workshop um, speaks about uh, how difficult it is to sharpen his tools and um, sunny boy pipes up and says but dad why don't you just set up a water wheel in the stream that flows past your workshop and attach the water wheel to a grinding stone, and that way you'll be able to resharpen your tools almost instantly whenever you want to. And Father says, what? Uh, What I'm trying to paint a picture of here is perhaps uh, the only time in history, the first time in history, where a younger generation seems to know more than the older generation. Up until that point, parents taught children about how the world really works. And they explained, and they taught, and children grew up with a dual lesson. They grew up understanding how the world really works, and they also grew up recognizing their parents as the authorities. Well, then comes the period of what I think of as the Berenstein Bears uh, era. And uh, if any of you, if you're raising children, if you're at a stage of life where you've got young children, I think you should put this show on hold right now and go and search the children's bookcase where the books that are read to the children are kept and see if you can find any of the Berenstein Bears books. And when you do, what you should do is burn them in a nice family bonfire outside. And when your children ask, why are you burning the Berenstein Bears books? You should explain that they always, each and every book, makes Dad look like a very kind and nice bumbling idiot. Uh, In all the books... The kids always know better than dad. Mom always knows better than dad. And dad's a good-hearted fool. And he's, he's, he's there and he's... But it's no good. The, the message conveyed is a message that constantly needs to be defeated because the culture is doing everything it can to make men... Well, for the moment, I'm just going to say irrelevant. But... Uh, Once upon a time, fathers actually did know better. Yes, there was. There was a show like that. That is true. Uh, There was a TV show of that kind. Um, Again, everything changes in the early 1960s. That's when everything starts changing. And uh, one of the things that starts changing is this idea that uh, just because father is older doesn't mean that he knows better. Up until that point, the idea of education was a student listening and learning from a teacher who was talking and demonstrating. And it was always clear that the role of the student was to listen, to ask questions, to learn. The role of the teacher was to teach. There was absolutely no confusion whatsoever about who knew more. Who was learning from whom? This was not a dual idea. This was not everybody learning from one another. No, there were teachers and there were students. Then, of course, came the 1960s and uh, on the American university campus and on the European university campus, everything changed. And students became co-directors of the academy. Uh, Students graded teachers as often as teachers graded students. Uh, Students defined the curriculum as much as teachers and administrators did. And uh, little by little, the idea that there was anything fixed to convey faded away. The idea that the past carried with it any wisdom at all began to diminish 
and eventually vanish entirely, to the point where today, indeed, even the adults have lost the notion that they have any sacred responsibility to convey information from the past, because the idea is that the past has absolutely nothing of any value. And even history, as a depiction of the past, has been diminished in value to the point now where, and this I know this sounds like an exaggeration, but it really isn't, in a huge number of schools around the United States of America, the only aspect of history that people know uh, that children are being taught um, are negative what happened to the Indians and what the white man did to the Indians and what the white man did to the Africans and slavery. And it's all the children are taught. In other words, history is almost by definition a lamentable catalog of crime. That's all it is. Okay. Uh, the website, I want to take a quick break. So, uh, as always, I like telling you about the website, uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, rabbidaniellappin.com. Great place to contact me, great place for us to hear from you, and a great place for you to make sure that you are receiving our weekly emails, which if you don't, you should, you certainly ought to try, and also an opportunity for you to browse through our store and take a look at the resources on the subjects we speak about on the uh, on the podcast, subjects you really care about. Our natural tendency in today's world is to view anything modern and new as good and desirable. Anything that belongs to yesterday or yesteryear is almost by definition, at very best, questionable, more likely utterly and completely dispensable. And so very often uh, I encounter, and I'm sure you do too, uh, some something that uh, is being criticized, and it was written, it may come from a classic book or from a classic movie even, and, and somebody says, oh, uh, that's an old-fashioned way, or that's a primitive way of looking at sex, or primitive way of looking at, and that's it, dismisses it. No question as to whether at all, I mean, it's undeniably old, but you see, too many of the words that we use for old, those synonyms I listed at the beginning of the show, uh, have a negative connotation associated with them instead of the idea that, look, the fact that it's old is not necessarily a reason to venerate it, neither is it a reason to dismiss it. We have to explore it. But today, the problem we're up against is that the culture automatically dismisses anything from yesterday or yesteryear as valueless. Take a look at uh, a little booklet that was printed in 1936. It's called, <laughs> the name of the book is How to Make Love. And I know exactly what you're thinking. And it's exactly what I thought when I first opened it. Um, it was given to me by uh, someone who was in the audience of a lecture I gave a few years ago along these very lines. And the person came up to me afterwards and said, I want to mail you a gift. I have a book that you'll make better use of than I will. And uh, it's called How to Make Love. <laughs> All right, that sounds interesting. And uh, I'll tell you uh, some of the things from this book. Again, I want to make clear, this is not a religious tract. It is, this is not produced by a Christian publisher. This is just a regular small book you might have picked up at the bookstore at the railway station in the 1930s. Uh, okay, here is um, a subject I'm, I'm from later in the book, Choosing a Husband or Wife. Unfortunately, uh, love is devoid of reason and logic. When a girl falls in love with a man, her action is the direct result of an emotion, not a thought, because love is entirely emotional and entirely irrational. Therefore, for this reason, the utmost care must be taken to be certain that the person with whom we fall in love is the proper person, the sort of person with whom you can expect to live happily the rest of your life. Uh, 
wow, have you, when do you hear this sort of thing? I mean, does anybody tell young people this at all? Uh, it talks about recognizing your faults and uh, knowing your virtues. Then goes on, have the two of you sprung from the same stratum of life? In other words, are your physical, mental, and economic equals? Are your religious differences sufficient to make married life a continual round of religious arguments and bickerings? Uh, are they powerful enough to split you when you are married and have children because you cannot agree to how the children to be brought up? Think of your families. Will they get along with each other? Oh, I know you're not marrying his family. You're marrying him. But you're just being an ostrich because being his family, they still have a powerful hold on him, if he is any sort of man at all. It may make romantic reading for a prince to fall in love with a peasant girl, but you may be sure for the couple it will not make romance. The couple has nothing in common except their supposed love for each other, and you cannot live very well on love alone, although a lot of us seem to think we can. And then they go on to discuss <clears throat> historic examples. Um, then, speaking to the woman, the author goes on and says, Are you certain that the man you love will make an ideal companion? There's a vast difference between love and companionship. Love is lived on the highest plane. Companionship is lived on a lower plane. And you cannot live continually in the higher, more rarefied, more frenzied atmosphere of love all your life. Most of the time, you've got to come down to earth, and that ability to come down to earth and live with your loved one depends on whether you are good companions. The prime necessity for an ideal companionship is not that the two temperaments should be exactly alike, but that they should be able to blend perfectly. Um, one thing to avoid, and this injunction I am making mostly to women, for it is they who attempt this impossible task. Do not fall in love with a man whose faults you recognize, but which you hope to eradicate by reform. You can't reform anyone. Reform means change, and if you change the man you love, you are more than likely to change not only him, but his love for you. This reform requires constant nagging, and the most efficient way of losing a man's love is to nag him about his faults. I mean, gosh, I'm going to read just a little bit more. And the point I'm making is that you know that most modern people will loathe the words I'm now reading. They'll hate this. And yet, if you ask them to put a finger on what's wrong with it, all they'll tell you is, it's so old-fashioned. It's no longer applicable. This isn't how modern women work. Uh, just a little bit more. Naturally, in choosing a mate, it is imperative that he or she be healthy. The ailing woman is a menace to any love affair. She should be strong enough to do housework. She should, she should be strong enough to bear children. She should be strong enough to do the work necessary towards the building of a home. Again, the same should apply to the man, but even more so, for he is going to be the main support of the future family. Upon him and his strength will rest the job of earning the expenses. And if he is unable to do so because of ill health, the future of the love match is put in jeopardy. Money is a very important factor here as it is in practically everything else and the young girl before she falls in love with a young man whose intentions are serious as they should be should make herself doubly certain that he will be able to take care of her and himself after they are married money has been called the root of all evil certainly it is the root of evil in a married life more marriages have been wrecked by money problems than perhaps by any other single factor uh, therefore, it is also necessary that the young man sees to it that his future wife is not extravagant, that she realizes the work that goes towards the earning of his salary, and that she is economical in food, dress, and luxuries. Uh, this is, that was towards the end of the book. A paragraph at the beginning of the book goes something like this. Marriage is the culmination of love. Two people should never fall in love with each other unless they understand thoroughly that their love for each other is to eventuate into a future marriage. Our civilization has lasted as long as it has because we've adhered strictly to the system of the relationship between man and woman. The birth of a child demands that man and woman participate in the creation. This is what marriage means, a coming together, a commingling, a fluxing, a joining for all the purposes of perpetuating the race. This blind drive, this unknown force of magnetism that attracts man and woman to each other is love. Without marriage, we would have children, perhaps, but the family, which is only possible in the marriage state, would not exist. And the family has been the sole reason for the perpetuation of civilization and the perpetuation of life itself. Um, it's, uh, it, it's pretty amazing stuff.
Again, I stress that this is not a religious tract. This is a book for ordinary people. There's nothing religious about it. But uh, here's what it says further. Before going into the discussion of the art of love, it is necessary that we understand the basic foundation on which love rests. There is only one kind of love, and that is the love of a man for a woman or vice versa. Mother love, brother love, sister love, platonic love, even the unspeakable loves of Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas and Lesbia and her charming girls on the island of Paphos, none of these is true love. Man was created strong, woman was created weak. Therefore, it is up to the man to protect his woman. Woman is so physically constituted that she needs man's strong protection. It is she who has the onus of bearing the children, while in this, etc., etc. Um, again, you know, there's there's nothing to challenge this. When it says weak, by the way, it means uh, obviously physically weak. The, that a, a man is stronger than a woman is known to absolutely everybody, except the bureaucrats who arrange college sports and the bureaucrats who hire and recruit for fire departments, for the military, and for the uh, for the police departments. Uh, but yes. It, it seems pretty clear, does it not? And by the way, as far as how to make love, the title of the book is concerned, if you uh, are, if you'd flip through it in a, uh, a quick search for anything truly racy, uh, the raciest it gets is uh, a description of how to move towards the first physical contact, how to move towards the first kiss, uh, and how, uh, how to understand that... Um, uh, that you shouldn't necessarily uh, be put off if she um, tries to sort of move out of your grasp as you try to kiss her cheek. Uh, how, and then say, however, if she uh, pushes you or, or, or really pulls away, then obviously you have to uh, separate and let her be. But uh, there is nothing racier than that. It stresses a few times that the full, ex to quote, the full extent of connubial bliss is reserved for after marriage. This is 1936. Ordinary people, ordinary American citizens, not specifically the religious community. No, this was how people thought. And again, I, I would truly be delighted to challenge any modern feminist to argue the merits of the points made in this book, that they tend to make the modern feminist vomit in outrage. I understand that. You know, it's possible to be so indignant about something that you have a physical reaction. I get that. But uh, let aside that you're going to have to tell me more about what's wrong with us than simply to say it's old-fashioned or it doesn't apply anymore or we've progressed beyond that because I don't accept any of that. Every single argument, every issue, every statement, every claim has to be evaluated on its own merits. Is it true or is it not true? And as repugnant as this book would be in the eye of almost any modern American college student, I would really enjoy going through it with somebody like that, um, paragraph by paragraph, and uh, talking about whether it's true or not true. Okay. Uh, what is true is that the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there and uh, you might want to join the Ask the Rabbi. You might want to read previous Ask the Rabbis or you might want to explore the library of thought tools. Uh, whatever it is, you are welcome to join at the rabbidaniellappin.com website and be in touch with us there. Love to hear from you. What I'd like you to do is visualize for a moment what a Jewish Star of David looks like. Uh, if you want to, you could even grab one of those 3x5 index cards without which you are never found and uh, put down, uh, draw a little equilateral triangle with its base on the bottom and its uh, apex pointing upwards. And then superimpose upon it another identical equilateral triangle, except uh, rotated 180 degrees, upside down, if you like, with its apex pointing down and its uh, base at the top. And uh, the reason I want you to bear that in mind is because it's not just a pretty picture. 
It's not just a symbol that is reputed to have appeared on the shield of King David. Uh, No, it's much more than that. It actually is a graphic depiction of uh, how time and understanding really work. What it's saying is, and let's start off with the triangle that shows a base at the bottom, and then uh, it it moves towards the apex at the top. That triangle, if you'd imagine it um, as a sort of a graph, shows a huge, wide body of information at the bottom. And as you climb upwards, as you move along in time upwards, uh, you reach narrow and narrow until finally there's just a speck, there's just a point left. Then you've got the other graph. Look at it separately. The separate, uh, the second triangle, uh, look at it as a standalone triangle. This is a triangle whose point is at the bottom, suggesting that there was nothing but a speck of information originally. And as time went by, more and more knowledge uh, entered and more and more knowledge was understood. And what is very helpful to understand for each and every one of us, friends, is that Uh, There are two categories of data. There is data which, admittedly, um, old information is not as useful. I um, have, in my library, I have some of the physics and mathematics textbooks from my father. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, These are from my father's high school. My father did not go to college and study mathematics and physics, but At high school level, his textbooks, honestly, are more advanced than um, second or third year students cover in college today in math and physics. But uh, what's interesting is that they reference, because he went to, um, he was at high school in in the first two decades of the 20th century. And uh, he, you know, so there's a lot of physics that wasn't known then, that is known today. Uh, When my father probably started high school, I'm going to say my father started high school probably, uh, well, yeah, about 1925, maybe something like that. And uh, you think about it, you know, that's only a few years after Einstein's general theory of relativity. Um, most of the thermodynamics, uh, most of the nuclear stuff, all of the stuff that came of age in the middle of the 20th century is not found in my father's textbooks. And so needless to say, when it comes to physics or chemistry or mathematics or biology, this belongs in the triangle that is point at the bottom and wide at the top, meaning that as the more time goes by, the more we know about those things. Uh, back to little Johnny in 1750, uh, telling his father about this amazing thing called a steam engine. Uh, yeah, right, uh, because each generation does actually know more than the preceding generation in that area. The mistake that we have allowed to permeate the culture now is to believe that that is everything, that this idea that each generation knows more than the preceding generation applies in all areas of knowledge and all areas of information, and nothing could be further from the truth as far as that is concerned. And so, uh, yes, uh, my my child has a, a clearer idea of the potential of smartphones. Uh, If I had to sit down to think of a new needed app that might sell well, I'm quite sure my child would have a better idea than I would of that because it's it's each generation has a, a more advanced starting point in technical understanding. So, again, I'm not going to say that uh, that if somebody is a professor of advanced physics that his, you know, 12-year-old son knows more than he does. Obviously, that's nonsense. But, but in general, the idea is that in the, uh, in the areas of technological development and change, this would be true. But how about all the other areas? 
How about the areas of um, male-female relationships? Going back to my book, How to Make Love, from 1936, right? That is a very different story. Because there, there is no reason to suppose that tomorrow's students will know more about that than yesterday's. Now, in a vain and futile effort to make that true as well, what has happened is that there has been an attempt to scientifically uh, reorganize our understanding of the human brain and human affairs. And uh, Sigmund Freud was a, a major part of that. I spoke in a, in a previous episode recently about Herbert Marcuse, who was a German Jew, uh, part of what was known as the Frankfurt School, um, who really was determined uh, to find a roadmap to reality that did not include God, did not include the soul. He wanted a roadmap to reality that uh, combined Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. And tragically, Marcuse actually came to America in the 50s and had an enormous impact on the growth of education in this country. Much of what I criticize in GICs, that's government indoctrination camps for newcomers to the show, what used to be known as public schools, government indoctrination camps, much of what we criticize there, much of what we criticize in the kindergartens that now pass for university campuses um, can be uh, attributed to Herbert Marcuse. But that the, the concept, that which drove him, this idea to try and make sure that we could understand reality without recourse to the soul or the spirit, uh, that was what he was devoted to. And uh, the attempt to try and uh, develop the fields of Freudian psychiatry and then psychology and putting them in the science departments of universities, not the humanities, so is that the idea was that we should be able to measure absolutely everything about human beings. We can apply a metric to any aspect of humanity, and uh, anything that isn't right can be rectified either by counseling, by therapy, or chiefly by medication. This isn't how it used to be, even as recently as 1936, when the book I alluded to was actually written, when it was understood that uh, our souls are an important part of who we really are, and, and that if we, uh, if we have a soul sickness, that's right, if we have a soul sickness, that doesn't necessarily mean a mental disease. It certainly doesn't mean something that can be cured or treated with little tablets. A soul sickness is something where our perception of reality is impacted in a negative way, and our soul is, is not in, in good shape. And the cure for that is entirely spiritual, not physical and not material. This used to be far better understood than it is today. Uh, whereas today, the idea is that um, uh, if a, uh, a young male commits a hideous crime, killing his schoolmates, uh, our immediate assumption is that um, this should have been picked up by the authorities, and that he should have been treated by the mental health community, or whatever it is. You, you know, the, what people say is, uh, is, is limitless on this topic. Everybody is an expert. But the notion that there is such a thing as a soul sickness uh, has been lost completely. And when you say something like this, people dismiss it. That's so old-fashioned. Oh, look what he's saying. Oh, look what he thinks. I mean, you know, where are you from, the 19th century? And that's all that they can say by way of criticism. Our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. www.rabbidaniellappin.com. 
and uh, you might want to stop by the store, take a look at some of the resources that we've prepared. There's always something that is on a special sale for the benefit of listeners to this show, and it, it may well be something that uh, applies to an area of your own life that you're busy working on. A uh, quick break, and we will be right back. We're back together again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And, of course, nothing could be more central to how the world really works than male-female relationships. And uh, we'll take a look at something now where you just know that anybody who has been Um, subject to 21st century cultural indoctrination, somebody who is part of America's governing rather than governed, among our rulers rather than among the ruled, uh, among the bureaucrats and regulators, among the intellectuals and elites, you know that uh, all these people Hearing what I'm about to speak about would uh, howl in utter hostile indignation. They would utter such outraged feelings and sounds, all because what I'm going to say is so old-fashioned and so primitive and so tribalistic and so irrelevant to modern people. Okay, well, um, what am I going to say? I'm going to say that if your children are, if you're raising children in the the sort of four-year-old, eight-year-old, 12, 15, if you're in that uh, age, uh, approaching teenage, in teenage, beyond that, um, it, it, it's, it's a little late for what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say, I think, will still be interesting. I hope it'll be interesting. But whether it could be life-changing, I think, kind of depends on whether your children are still at a point where you have the ability to influence them. Needless to say, you and your spouse obviously need to be on the same page on this. What am I going to do? Um, I'm going to uh, paint a picture of a, a young woman uh, maybe she's a uh, in first year of college, you know, so she's what, uh, she might be 18 or 19 or 20. And uh, a young man comes up to her and says, um, now, again, look, I know that even what I'm about to say is very dated because nowadays he'd probably come up to her and say, want to hook up? <laughs> or are you on Tinder? Uh, look, it's, it's, and I laugh, but I shouldn't because lives are destroyed. It's, it's hideous. But in my in in my perspective, at least, this guy comes up to this young woman and says, um, "Would you like to go out with me to a movie um, tonight or tomorrow night or Saturday night or whatever he's going to say?" And she responds instead of saying, "Yeah, that would be nice," or "Yeah, maybe," she responds by saying, um, "Well." Uh, she says, I'd really prefer that you first talk with my father. And um, now, you know, does she ever see him again? Does the guy, in fact, follow up with us? What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that the girl I'm painting a picture of is part of a family that believes in courting, not dating. What is her, what the family feels that uh, dating carries with it real uh, costs. Uh, the, the, the idea that dating is just a harmless game that young people play um, is not correct. If, if anything, an argument can be made. And I know that this, this can sound, <laughs> I don't know why I feel I need to keep apologizing for this, I guess because it all sounds so terribly old-fashioned. But uh, dating is really preparation for divorce. That's what dating really is. 
you know, you like this guy or this girl, you go out with them for a little bit, and that's nice, and if it doesn't work out, we break up and they move on. The presumption is that dating is serial. It's one thing after another, and, and people don't realize the tremendous emotional bite that is taken out of your psyche every time you fall in love with somebody and then break up with them. And if that is not a preparation for divorce, I don't know what is. So uh, why on earth would you prepare for a long-term marriage by a sequence of many short-term relationships, each one of which ends in pain for, you know, for at least one of them, if not both of them? Uh, The fact is that um, uh, it's all very well to to un- to understand and there are many people who understand the dangers of a sexual relationship or serial sexual relationships there are people who understand that uh, the 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 awareness that uh, sex between a man and a woman creates an absolutely unbreakable bond that is not a connection that goes away it, it is forever a part of those two people Right, and is that something you really want to take into marriage with you? And I've spoken in the past that astoundingly, one of the most important correlations for durable and stable marriages is no prior sexual relationship. So, I mean, this is not hard to understand, it is uncomfortable to understand. And uh, because we're human beings who like minimal restrictions on our lives, because we're human beings who have needs and wants and desires, and we prefer to have absolutely no regulation of those desires, the, uh, the whole idea of speaking about the damage done by premarital sex is so primitive and old-fashioned, <laughs> right? But it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's false. And... Uh, and it goes further than that, because even if you are a part of a, a family or you're raising your children for um, a, a lifestyle that doesn't include sex with people you date before marriage, the problem with dating still is the emotional roller coaster. The, the thing about courting is completely different. Courting is, first of all, not undertaken until marriage is a possibility. And so the whole idea of people dating in middle school, preposterously (laughs) ridiculous, dating in high school, dating in the middle of college, and simply uh, surrendering to a lengthy sequence of ups and downs and painful ins and outs, awful, uh, but still, the the emotional ups and downs are tremendously damaging. They're very, very hurtful. But in courting, courting only begins when there is a um, a possibility of marriage, and courting also involves the family. And so, if a guy is courting a girl the likelihood is he's going to meet her parents very early on. For instance, in the word picture I painted at the beginning of this discussion, uh, it's very possible she'll say, um, you know, I, 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 you seem a very nice guy, but in our family, uh, the way it works is you'd speak to my father first. Now, if the guy can't handle that, it's a self-selective process. That's great. Now she knows it's not for her. But at that point, uh, a conversation with the father takes place. And you can understand that his whole relationship to her now is different because if the father approves and they go out, he's got a pretty good idea that this is not a girl uh, without a background and without a protective network and without a supportive family. Um, it's, it's all very different, an entirely different thing. Uh, it's very possible that uh, they would spend a certain amount of time with family, family events, whatever. They wouldn't just be out on their own because both of them realize the importance of the other's family, right? which, again, today is regarded as old-fashioned. The nice thing is that courting is old-fashioned. Of course it is. There's no question about it. And the the benefits are, are many. Yes, it is not modern. It's not contemporary. 
but the way that dating has developed and the way it's practiced today in the early years of the 21st century uh, is is really very problematic. It's it's not helpful. So you've got a choice. You know, you say to yourself, well, it's what everybody does, and I don't want to appear old-fashioned. I don't want my children to think I'm uh, primitive or primeval or uh, you know, part of a long-forgotten culture. Or you say, look, I'm the parent. Uh, for better or for worse, we're going to do it my way. Uh, your mother and, and I, your father and I, we, uh, we we know what we want for you. And it's our belief that this is the way that you are going to be happier. And the child's going to say, it's so old-fashioned. They used to do that thing in the 19th century. Or maybe kids today say, oh, it's so old-fashioned. They used to do it in the 20th century. But uh, whatever it is, the, uh, the answer of a confident and strong parent is, uh, uh, yeah, and not everything from the past is wrong. What we have to do is not condemn it by simply saying, oh, it's old-fashioned. We have to acknowledge, yes, it may be an idea from the past. Now let's analyze whether it's a good idea or whether it's a bad idea. And uh, substituting courting for dating happens to be an old-fashioned idea. It's an idea from the past, but it happens to be a very good idea. Courting is much better than dating. It leads to a much happier life. When children say sometimes to you, don't you want me to be happy? The answer is, I don't really care that much whether you are a happy 13-year-old. I really, really care that you are a happy 30-year-old. And the second thing you do is you teach them that happiness is not something that somebody else does for them. Happiness is a condition that they find exclusively within themselves. And that, my dear friends, is as far as we go for today. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and until next week, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for promoting it and telling other people about it. Thank you for visiting my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Thank you for purchasing anything at our store on that website that works for you and adds and enhances to your life. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you.